pointer now. Let's uh, pray as we come to look at this passage this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the prophets uh, who you revealed your plans and purposes to. We thank you for this chance to uh, read and and, uh, hear the prophet Joel, uh, what he saw about your marvellous kingdom, the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. And we pray that we might understand uh, his prophecy today and uh, how to live in the light of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. that clicking? There we go. Okay, what you see in the picture there is the horizon, isn't it? Uh, the horizon is what you see as far as you can see. Um, the higher you go though, uh, the more you see and uh, the further you can see as well. There's some photos I took from up at Port Stephens, if you uh, recognise that. As the prophet Joel looked out over human history, there were basically two horizons in his view. We can normally only see one horizon at a time, can't we? But because Joel was a prophet of God, God gave him insight. He could see further than just what was in front of his eyes from the human perspective. He was also given God's perspective of what lay in the future. So Joel's first horizon was what he could see happening in his day. But Joel also looks beyond that horizon to God's coming kingdom, to the day when God would bring his kingdom on earth. And this coming of God's kingdom is what he calls the day of the Lord. Now, when we come to read Joel in the light of the New Testament, what we see is that uh, Joel's day of the Lord, that second horizon, actually has another horizon. So here's Joel. He's looking out on his day and he sees the locusts and he's got a message about the locusts. We saw that, but last week we also saw he saw the coming day of the Lord. And when we come to the New Testament, uh, that horizon breaks into two. Uh, We we see that uh, the day of the Lord comes with the first coming of Jesus, with his death and resurrection, and we're going to see the way that the New Testament uses the, the prophecy of Joel to speak of God's kingdom come when Jesus died on the cross. But what we also see in the New Testament is another horizon, The New Testament also uses the language of Joel to speak of Jesus' second coming as well. So in a sense, there's three horizons in the book. There's Joel's day, there's the first coming of Jesus, and there's Jesus' second coming. And as we look at Joel this morning, the second half of his book, we're going to be exploring each of these horizons. So we begin by looking at um, what happened in Joel's day, horizon number one. And if you remember back to last week, Joel chapter one, Joel described the devastating locust plague that had come and stripped the land bare. And Joel understood that locust plague to be a warning that the people needed to turn back to the Lord 
before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord. And remember, we saw that described in chapter 2 as that army that was coming from heaven to bring destruction on God's people. And at the end of chapter 1 and at the end of the vision in chapter 2, Joel calls on the people to turn back to the Lord, return to the Lord with all your heart, not just tearing your clothes, but tearing your heart. Return to the Lord because he is gracious and compassionate and he longs to show mercy. And what we see in the second half of chapter 2, which Steve just read for us, is that that has indeed happened. It seems the people have listened to the prophets. They have turned back to the Lord and they have experienced his grace and his compassion. And now in chapter 2, the second half of chapter 2, God promises a marvellous restoration. Israel's prophets speak in word pictures and it's important for us to unpack these pictures. Uh, Here's a recent picture I saw. I found quite funny. Uh, How to flex in an Australian supermarket. Flexing, showing off. How do you show off in an Australian supermarket? You have a shopping bag with a lettuce in it. Given the price of lettuces, it's a lettuce Vuitton is your handbag. (laughs) Uh, I found that quite funny anyway. Uh, But if you'd seen that picture a year ago, it wouldn't have made much sense, would it? We've been through a whole, you know... uh, Supply, damage with the floods, can't get lettuces, lettuces of 6 to $10 each. Given what has happened in history, that picture makes sense, doesn't it? And it's like this with the Old Testament prophets too. We've got to understand something of their world to see how the picture that they're describing makes sense for us. So we've got to go back into their story. What we see, the picture that Joel is giving us, is a marvellous picture of restoration, of bounty, of agricultural bounty, because that's the world that they lived in. Okay, we just go to the shops to get our lettuce, but they're farming their fields, you know, reaping the grain, uh, putting their grapes into the vats and, and, and treading the grapes for their wine. You know, it's, it's their lived experience. And that's what we see here. It's a marvellous picture of restoration. Verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, The Lord was jealous for his land. He took pity on his people. I am sending you, the Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. These are the, the staples. This is what they existed on, these crops and the wine. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Red Dead Sea, its western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, God had likened the locusts to an army. And here, these this horde, this like invaders, this army that's invaded are going to be driven out and uh, they're going to be driven into the sea, the Mediterranean Sea uh, there to the west and the Dead Sea there to the east. And then they're going to be driven into a barren land. Uh, this area here was desert. That's where the locusts, they're going to be sent far and wide to perish uh, and they're not going to do their devastating work anymore. Um, 
All the trees that were damaged back in chapter 1, they're going to be restored. The wild animals that had been uh, uh, suffering, panting, are going to be satisfied. Uh, As we continue to read verse 21, Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. Your vats will overflow with new wine and oil. God will repay the people in verse 25 for what the locusts have eaten, the great locust, the young locust, the other locust, the locust swarm, my great army that I send among you. Um, Once again, there's the locusts likened to an army in terms of their devastating uh, judgment. But the climax of all of this is what God had intended. This is why God had sent the locusts in the first place because the people had wandered from him Their hearts had gone from him. But now God sees that the relationship is restored. Now, verse 26, you've got plenty to eat until you're full. And then what will happen? You will praise the name of Yahweh, the Lord, your God. He has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be put to shame. Then you will know that I am in Israel. I will dwell amongst you, is what he's saying. That relationship is restored. That I am the Lord your God. That's a a classic phrase that occurs throughout the Old Testament to speak of the renewed covenant relationship between God and his people where he is their God. And that they will know there is no other. There is no other God. Never again will my people be put to shame. Notice how that's repeated there for emphasis. Shame is a consequence of sin and the judgment of God. The locusts had brought great shame on God's people, but now as the people re- return, the relationship is restored. There's praise, God's presence, there's blessing. It's a marvelous picture, a picture that we're to see of God's people living the way God intended in the world enjoying the fruits of the land, enjoying their relationship. See the picture that the Old Testament gives us of relationship with God. So that's Joel's immediate horizon. That's what they experience in his day because of their return to the Lord. They've returned to the Lord and the Lord has returned to them and they're experiencing his blessing. But there's another horizon in Joel, as I mentioned. Remember the logic of last week? The locusts have come, turn back to the Lord because the day of the Lord will bring an even greater judgment. Well, what we see is that the people have returned to the Lord. They've escaped the judgment of the day of the Lord, that second horizon, but that day of the Lord will still come. It will still come. Okay, so here's the... The locusts have been turned back. There's restored relationship. But Joel still envisages that the day of the Lord will come. And the marvellous message at the end of chapter 2 is that on that day of the Lord, when it does come, no longer will they be under God's judgment. 
No longer will Jerusalem be destroyed like it was, but because they're in a right relationship with God, on that day they will be saved. Let me show you these connections in uh, Joel. Uh, The descriptions of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord that we saw last week, alas for that day, the day of the Lord is near, it will come like destruction. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars are no longer shine. The day of the Lord is great. It's dreadful. Who can endure it? So that's what they're in for. But now that they've turned to the Lord, uh, well, yeah, one other description, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But what we see, because they've turned to him, now it is a day of salvation. Um, Verse 32, look at chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved on that day. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there'll be deliverance from the day of the Lord, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. See, the day of the Lord now isn't going to be a judgment of God's people, but it will bring salvation because they're in a right relationship with him. Who is the, the, who's going to be saved on the day of the Lord? All those who call on the name of the Lord, those who are in a relationship with the Lord. And what we see in chapter 2 also, it's those on whom God has put his spirit. Verse 28, afterward I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. See, in Joel's day, it was just the privilege of the prophet to have the spirit, to to have insight into what God was doing, to be in that special relationship where they are in the very presence of God and, and knew his future. But this will be the experience of all God's people from the greatest to the least, sons and daughters. This is remarkable, isn't it? That God will give this experience to all of his people. I think what we see here in Joel is what Paul would say is the gospel being announced beforehand. Uh, Paul begins Romans by saying, well, I didn't invent the gospel. Jesus didn't invent the gospel. The gospel was what God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, through his prophets. Joel's one of the prophets. The Holy Scriptures that Paul's writing about are the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament is the gospel. I think we see that so clearly here. Here we see Joel speaking about the events around Jesus' first coming. I've got a couple of passages from the Gospels here. Um, And see how they echo the language of Joel. So at Jesus' crucifixion, just before he dies, the Gospel writers tell us that it was from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. Uh, Luke's Gospel, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until the afternoon. And then he adds also, the sun stopped shining. Can you see how that language echoes 
Joel, this, uh, the, second ver- the second verse there, the sun and the moon are dark and the stars no longer shine. It will be turned to darkness, the moon. I think what we're to see is the gospel writers are using the language of Joel to show how Jesus' death is the day of the Lord that Joel spoke about, which brings salvation. Well, it's judgment. It's judgment on the world, judgment on the sins of the world. But the great news of Jesus is that he took the judgment of God when he died on the cross. That was the day of the Lord where sin was judged, but it enabled a way of salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In uh, the book of Acts, we see that the writer of Acts, Luke, sees that Joel, his day of the Lord, is being fulfilled in the early church. We saw this when we were looking at Acts recently, didn't we? Uh, this, Sorry, the typing's so small here, but uh, Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then there's a quote, all that indent is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, being quoted. I'm going to have to read it from here, I think. Uh, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that is what has brought then Jesus' resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, which is what Joel foresaw, isn't it? The the gospel announced in advance. So that people from all, uh, uh, both Jew and Gentile, can know God and be in a relationship with him. So that's the second horizon that I think we see in Joel. Uh, the day of the Lord that speaks of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection and his pouring out of the Spirit. That's what Joel saw. However, Joel 3 also speaks about what will be the judgment day for those who are God's enemy. So that's what we saw last week, Joel 2. The judgment's coming, the army of the Lord's coming on Jerusalem because Jerusalem, the people, are acting like God's enemies. But they repented, they turned to God and now they're going to be saved on that day. But Joel also looks to those who continue to be God's enemies and they're the ones who are, going, who are the, the focus of chapter 3 that we see. Uh, we haven't had that read yet. I'll read uh, some bits of Joel, of Joel 3. But I think this is the third horizon of Joel. And a lot of the pictures that the prophet uses here are pictures that thankfully we here in Sydney don't have much experience of, but people throughout world history have. And this is the imagery of warfare and the horrors of war. The horror of Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given us some sense of the terror and meaninglessness of war. Civilian lives are damaged and, 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 and destroyed through acts of horrific violence initiated by despotic leaders. But you look through human history 
And warfare has been a common experience. I mean, you just look at the, this is a frightening article, um, on the Wikipedia page, the list of wars by death toll. And you can scan through and see the, here's the, the outline of the, the contents. Ancient wars before 500 AD. Medieval wars, 500 to 1500 AD. Modern war, and, and it goes through and the estimates of lives lost. Of course, um, the, uh, <clears throat> the greatest death toll was just last century, 60 years ago, World War II. 85 million people killed in that war. Warfare is a common human experience. The Israelites experienced warfare through their history. We see this in the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, in those days at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I'll gather all nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Uh, if you translate that Jehoshaphat, it's the valley of uh, judgment or the valley of decision. Um, uh, it's the, the judgment valley might be another way of uh, translating that. There, I'll put them on trial. Why are the nations being brought down to trial? Because of what they did to my inheritance. My people, Israel, they scattered my people amongst the nations. You know, that's what we're seeing in the Ukraine, the people being driven from their homes, being driven as exiles all around the world. That's common, what happens in war. But the invaders divided up the land of Israel. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. See, I think for the readers, ancient readers of Joel, they would have thought of what happened. This kind of thing actually happened in Israel a number of times. They're probably thinking of the Babylonian captivity of Jerusalem when the Babylonians came in and, and uh, put fire to the city, destroyed the temple, uh, sent people far and wide and then sold boys and girls so that they could use the money to sleep with prostitutes so that they could use the money to buy wine to get drunk with. What a horrific disregard for human life. And as Joel goes on, the people of Phoenicia and the Philistines will also be held accountable for their action. Uh, the Philistines were the cities of Tyre and Sidon in verse 4. All you regions of Philistia, that where the Philistines were from, are you repaying me for something I've done? If you're paying me back, I'm going to swiftly and speedily return on your heads what you've done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homelands. These are the crimes that we see picked up on in the very next book, the book of Amos. He's the next prophet who criticizes Edom in the 8th century for trafficking slaves. See, slave trading is condemned throughout the Bible. It's a horrible disregard for human dignity. But this third horizon of Joel looks to the day when God will pay back these hideous injustices. Verse 7, see, I'm going to arouse them out of the places to which you sold them and I'll return on your own heads what you've done. I'll sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah and they'll sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. What, what Joel is getting at here is a sense of poetic justice. What the people have done to others, 
it will be done to them. God will do to them as bringing his justice. His justice is fair. He will give to people according to what they have done. And so God calls on all those in the world to gather together and to do battle against the one they've truly offended, the Lord. See, these crimes that the people have committed against other human beings are actually crimes against God. And so in verse 9, Joel says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. You know, get ready. Get whatever weapons you can muster up. Turn those agricultural implements, the the plowshares and the pruning hooks into swords and spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. There's great uh, irony there, I think, because uh, the weakling is going to be no match. They're only fooling themselves. They might, they might say, I'm strong, but really they're no match for the Lord's army, which then Joel calls down in verse 11. Come quickly, all you nations from every side. Assemble there. Bring down, br- then bring down your warriors, Lord. Well, we know what the Lord's warriors look like from chapter 2, that devastating army. You know, here's the enemies of God gathered uh, on the day of the Lord, and we, you know, we know some of these displays of human strength designed to intimidate other nations. It's almost like gather the best of your armies, gather them all into this valley, and then the Lord's going to bring His army down. Let the nations, verse twelve, be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. But as impressive as human armies might appear, on the day of the Lord, they will be powerless before God. And it's interesting, in Joel, he doesn't actually describe the battle. It's like the the, the armies, these great armies that are gathered together, they, they don't do anything. Because what we then have a description of is the Lord's destruction. Verse 13, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. See, elsewhere, harvest. See, it moves into a picture of harvest, doesn't it? But it's, a, it's, a, it's not the harvest of bounty that we saw in chapter 2. This is the harvest of God's judgment, and it's horrible. It's the trampling of grapes, but the the fluid that spills out isn't the wine, it's blood. This is the same image that we find in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven 
and he too had a sharp sickle. Uh, still another angel who had charge of the, of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who held the sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because the grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, um, uh, gathered the grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood. So you'd expect wine, wouldn't you? From the, but this is an image of judgment. It's a horrific judgment, isn't it? Blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. A stadia is about 600 feet or 200 metres. So that's a, about a kilometre, a kilometre of high of, of blood. What a, what a picture. But this is the third horizon that we see in the book of Joel. It's the final judgment that will happen at Jesus' return. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Uh, The valley of decision can also be translated the valley of threshing. It's not a human decision. It's not like people are deciding on this day which way they're going to go. No, this is the decision that God makes. It's his judgment decision. It's the decision that he makes to put things right in his worlds. And we see the same language of the day of the Lord again in verse 15. The sun and the moon will be darkened. The stars will no longer shine. It's a day of devastating judgment for the violence and inhumanity of people in this world. They'll be brought to account. But for God's people, on this this day, the second coming of Jesus, there will be salvation. Uh, The Lord will roar from Zion, thunder from Jerusalem, which is interesting, that's how the next book of of, of Amos begins with the Lord coming and roaring from Zion and Jerusalem, but the earth and the heavens will tremble. The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house, will water the valley of Acacias. Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. And uh, this language that we see, these pictures that we see at the end of the book of Joel are also used in the New Testament. Uh, The fountain that flows out of the Lord's house is picked up on in a marvellous image at the end of the book of Revelation as well with the water that flows out from the temple bringing healing for the nations. In John's Gospel, Jesus is the one who offers that life-giving water and he is the ultimate presence of God, that temple that, uh, uh, from which all the blessing spills out into the world. See, the, 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 the New Testament uses this language of Joel 
to speak of the salvation that comes in Jesus. But it also uses it to speak of the judgment that comes at the end of the age in Jesus as well. And that's where we see that uh, verse from Romans that Steve read for us as well. Romans 10. Um, to, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth and you profess and saved. As scripture says. And then the scripture that Paul's quoting here is Joel. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Remember that at the end of, uh, uh, never be put to shame in verse 27? You'll never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord and richly blesses all who call on his name. And here's another quote from Joel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the great message, the gospel in advance. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Because Jesus took the judgment that we deserve for our sins in his death on the cross. However, Joel also sees that for those who reject Jesus, for those who do violence to their fellow human being and shed innocent blood, as it puts it in verse 19, violence and innocent blood, God won't leave this unavenged. There will be judgment. I think there's a tendency these days to downplay the judgment day in our preaching for various reasons. Um, but the judgment day is actually good news for our worlds. We've all suffered injustice at various times, haven't we? Injustice makes us angry. It's painful. We can only imagine what it must be like for the people of Ukraine whose homes are being destroyed and whose children and relatives are being killed. It's outrageous. Joel looks to the day when God will bring an end to the war in Ukraine, when there'll be war no more in our worlds. That's the third horizon of Joel. That's what we see here. The judgment day. And that's when God will put things right at Jesus' return. That's why amidst the, the pain and the suffering in our world, the disasters that come, often all that we can do is cry out, come Lord, come, Maranatha. But Jesus tells us when we suffer injustice, not to take matters into our own hands. It's not our place to take vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's. He teaches us a different way. Of course, for the people of Ukraine, there's every right to take up arms and defend themselves in the midst of that attack. But there's no ultimate justice in this world until Jesus returns on the day of the Lord. See, Joel speaks of the day of the Lord, the day when God will come and establish his glorious kingdom. And what we see in the New Testament is that this kingdom has come in Jesus' death on the cross and it will come when he returns. And the guarantee that he will return is actually his resurrection. Uh, this is what we see in Acts. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The guarantee 
of that justice on that day when Jesus returns is the real in space and time resurrection of Jesus that was witnessed. This is what happened. This is what Christians believe. This is why the resurrection is at the heart of our faith because it gives us confidence that God will do what he has promised on that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we look around our world and see just the horrors of uh, humanity's inhumanity, our hearts go out to those who are suffering. Father, in our own lives, um, we experience injustice. Other people let us down. They do horrible things. Father, we confess that we do the same. We don't keep our words. Our thoughts, our actions are so often so displeasing to you. Father, we repent. We cry out to you. Thank you for Jesus who forgives us through his death on the cross. And thank you that in his name we can have confidence on that last day that we will be saved. But we cry out for the Lord Jesus to return and fix the mess of this world, to bring in your eternal kingdom, the new creation, the home of righteousness. Father, we long for that day. But help us to be people of faith in the meantime, people who love our neighbour and hold out your hope, the hope of the gospel, the hope of what we have in Jesus. We thank you for that assurance that we have through his resurrection from the dead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.